Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Now we're going to visit with Carlos Rodriguez. He is the president and the chief executive of ADP. And just uh, by way of quick background, in August, uh, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Capital announced that it had taken an 8.3% stake. And since then, it has been in a, well, proxy battle with uh, ADP. And here to tell us more is uh, Carlos Rodriguez. Carlos, thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. I'm gonna, I'm just going to start you off by um, asking you, based on your experience in the job and who you've talked to and your analysis, do you really believe that Bill Ackman wants to make ADP a better company or does he just want to make a lot of money and go away? Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, there's no question that the business model that he has is really about making a lot of money and eventually going away. But I think he has some uh, done a lot of research on the company and certainly has some ideas about how to make the company better. So it's probably a little bit of both. So do you think that he's largely right in his criticisms of ADP? No, I think that you know some of his information is outdated. Um, I think as he's done his research, he's probably spoken to some folks that have a perspective of ADP that's probably outdated. He, um, As you mentioned, we, the first time we heard from Bill was in August. So he hasn't had the benefit of really having a dialogue with the company to understand the things we've been working on. So let's go over what his main criticisms are. He's been saying that ADP has a, quote, buy, not build model, whereas uh, he would like to see a more innovative spirit. Um, he has some other complaints, too, among them that board members don't have a big stake in the company like himself. Uh, he's saying, I have a better uh, sense of the interest of shareholders. What's your sense? What's your what's your counter to those points? Well, starting with the uh, the ownership question, all of our directors have been deferring the cash comp portion of their fees uh, for many years, and some of them have millions of dollars worth of ADP stocks. So it's just not, I don't think it's an accurate depiction of our board and, and their, the stake that they have in, uh, in ADP. In terms of the innovation uh, point, um, you know, we've, we've really been all about innovation over the last six years, and I think that's one of those uh, items where I think if we'd had an opportunity to have dialogue and communicate with Bill, he probably would have a different perspective because we've been investing in cloud technology over the last six years. We've uh, moved 83% of our clients to new cloud solutions. So I think it's really, I think, again, outdated information. It's it's just not it's not accurate. What about margins? He, he's noted that uh, he felt that margins were too low in the business. Well, that's, that's an interesting question because we, we meet with investors, obviously, on a regular basis, as you can imagine. And the absolute level of our margins really isn't one of the items that we've heard a lot about up until uh, Bill... Uh, contacted us. Um, so we obviously have margin improvement initiatives underway. We've actually grown our margins by 580 basis points over the last uh, five years during my tenure. And we have a plan that we've uh, publicly put out there to increase the margins by another 500 basis points over the next three years. So I think we're focused on margin uh, as Bill is. I think it's really about pace and I think the risk reward ratio of how fast you move. So there have been a lot of public jabs back and forth. I'm wondering, on the private side, have you sat down with Bill Ackman, explained your point of view, and uh, what was that like, if so? We have. We've had, uh, I think, professional and cordial conversations. Bill uh, also came 
myself and our chairman with Bill, and we've also had a meeting with the full board of directors where Bill came and uh, gave his, uh, his, the information that he had, the research that he had done, and then his, his opinions about where the company should go. So I think the company's been open to uh, dialogue, and I think it's been professional and cordial. So you went on uh, television shortly after Bill Ackman uh, announced his stake and called him a used car salesman and a spoiled brat. Your, your rhetoric is a lot less inflammatory today. Is there a reason for that? Um, you know, probably time heals all wounds, as they say. <laughs> all right, then. And so I think, uh, you know, Bill is a significant shareholder, and we obviously are open to listening to all shareholders. We do disagree, obviously, with his his perspective on the timing of how fast we should be improving our margins. And we also disagree uh, with, the board disagrees with the candidates that he's proposed as, as nominees. But, you know, we're trying to focus really Why? on the facts now. What's been your main uh, objection to uh, the people he's nominated in his ideas? Well, it's not myself. It's really the board and our nominating and governance committee who interviewed the candidates. And, you know, we believe that we have a strong and independent board. We've added, for example, uh, four new members over the last three years, including three with strong technology experience. One of them is Bill Reddy, who's the COO of PayPal. So we've added some really great talent around technology in order to really help us push this innovation uh, movement that we have in the company. And so we think we have a strong independent board that is very capable, has a good mixture of tenure and history with the company, but a lot of fresh thinking as well. So I think the committee, the nominating governance committee, just came to the conclusion that there really wasn't any additive value from the three directors that Bill is proposing. Can you describe what it was like and where you were when you first learned that Pershing Square had an 8.3% stake in your company? Actually, I do remember that quite well, and I probably will remember it for a long time. I was in my car, uh, arriving home, about to leave on a uh, on a trip, uh, and I was actually leaving a board meeting. And I looked at my my cell phone rang. I looked at it, and it said Bill Ackman. And so, I answered the phone, and Bill and I had again a professional and cordial conversation where he said that he wanted to uh, replace five directors of the company and replace me, and that the company just needed to move faster, and that he wasn't uh, that he had an eight percent stake. He didn't clarify at the time uh, that he had only a 2% stake and the rest was in stock options, uh, which we you know, figured out later down the, down the road. But um, you know, obviously, I immediately called our chairman after that. And then we had a board meeting to discuss the, the situation and then to talk about next steps. I love the idea of cordially discussing, you know, saying to somebody, I'd like to see you removed and cordially saying, well, I disagree with you. I imagine it was quite a, quite a conversation. Well, it was, I have to admit it was a surreal uh, moment, but you know, it's my job to be, I think, unemotional. And I think I serve at the pleasure of the board and also at the pleasure of the shareholders. Carlos Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Carlos Rodriguez is president and chief executive officer of ADP, which is based in Roseland, New Jersey. ADP, of course, is very well known for the employment reports that they put out on a regular basis that are used as a gauge of the employment market uh, in the United States.
Well, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has warned of severe challenges while laying out a roadmap to turn China into a leading global power by 2050. He was speaking at the twice-a-decade party gathering, and uh, here to tell us a little bit more about it and uh, maybe some analysis is uh, Bill Rhodes. Uh, Bill Rhodes is uh, the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance, and of course, he is also the president and chief executive of William Rhodes Global Advisor. Bill Rhodes, thank you very much uh, for spending time with us. uh, Xi Jinping spoke about the Chinese dream. Does the Chinese dream include a nuclear-armed North Korea? Well, I think that, um, uh, as you remember, Pim, I've been saying on your show for the last more than a year that the most important political event of this year was not going to be the elections in Europe, but the uh, 19th Party Congress, which, as you mentioned, already started. And uh, this sort of crowns uh, Xi Jinping as uh, the leader, at least for the next five years, if not longer, because um, if he decides to keep his chief lieutenant, Wan Shishan, uh, on the standing committee of the Politburo, and this will be announced at the end of the conference, first of all, how many members will be on the standing committee of the Politburo? Will it be uh, seven, as you have now, or will we reduce it to five? And very important whether he'll keep Wan Shishan, because Wan Shishan is a 69, and the informal date to retire among seniors in China is 68. And so if he keeps him on, this then opens the door for uh, Xi Jinping not only to do this five years uh, to uh, 2022, but opens the door to do another five years, uh, which would uh, be something that has not happened since Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. So it, it, it's very critical uh, in, in this area. I also feel, and as you know, I did an op-ed on it, uh, came out two days ago, that uh, China is the only one who can basically halt what's going on in, in, uh, in Korea uh, with Kim Jong-un and this continuous development of missile technology and matching it with nuclear uh, capability. Uh, nuclear warheads. And the the reason the Chinese can do that is they supply almost all their oil and gas. And if they cut that off, uh, and they've they've said they're going to cut off a little bit, but they need to cut off basically all of it, because then the Chinese Chinese will have the ability to to stop the Korean armed forces right in their track. And I think that's what needs to be done. Uh, And hopefully with this visit uh, that uh, President Trump is going to make Uh, in the next few weeks to uh, China, and he will be the most important person to have arrived in China after the Party Congress, which is, by the way, held every five years. So this gives these two the opportunity to try and sort out uh, North Korea, because the sanctions so far approved uh, at the United Nations won't do it. Bill, um, you're an unbelievably expert negotiator. You have vast experience over decades of negotiating debt deals and other deals uh, across the world. And I'm wondering, can we talk about what we've gleaned from the uh, beginnings anyway of the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, of what China wants its role to be as a global negotiator and a global force, much akin to the U.S.? Well, I think in Asia, They want to replace the United States as the leading uh, military political entity. Uh, That's the immediate goal. And as you know, since he took office five years ago, Xi Jinping has substantially upgraded and continues to upgrade the Chinese military, whether it be the army, 
the Navy, where they particularly upgraded a big time, were the Air Force. And so he wants to be the dominant uh, uh, power there. And so this is going to be a challenge to the United States. Now, what the global, uh, let's say, uh, aspects of this will be uh, is not uh, are not clear. But I think the real challenge for Xi Jinping within China is to handle uh, and to tackle some of the economic and financial problems. I mean, the, the debt has been growing way out of line, the debt to GDP. It's over 280 percent. And uh, if he continues at the same pace next year, it'll go over 300 percent. Well, this isn't sustainable over time. And so uh, what it what it does is cause distortions in, in in the economy. I mean, the continuing funding of the of the state-owned enterprises, uh, you know, to a tremendous degree, uh, is not really healthy because a lot of these are zombie companies uh, in the areas of coal, steel, shipbuilding. And the former premier of China had started to Zhuangzi uh, some 20 years ago had started the the process of trying to weed out some of the zombie zombie companies, but this is sort of stopped. And uh, what Xi Jinping wants to do is to sort of merge the state-owned enterprises with some private enterprise to make them stronger, but not really to downsize them, which is necessary. Then you have a bubble in the property and real estate market, which needs to be looked after. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you have a similar situation with the growing debt of the municipalities. Added to all of this, you have a problem with shadow banking, which is now some 87 percent of total GDP of China, and it's very lightly regulated, if at all. And so all of these things, if they're not dealt with over the next couple of years, could really cause a problem economically and financially in China. Well, and uh, and I, I think uh, slow growth, which, as you know, is so important not only to China, but the world. Well, but Bill, I'm wondering if now that this important meeting, this twice a decade meeting, uh, is uh, close to being finished, will China be more aggressive in curbing some of that leverage uh, now that there doesn't have to be sort of a, a, a dance up to the up to the meeting? Well, that is my hope and the hope of a lot of uh, China followers is that that that'll happen. Uh, Starting next year. Now, they've taken some steps by putting in a reformer to run the banking commission, the CBRC, and uh, they will have to replace uh, the governor of the Central Bank of China, the People's Bank of China, who is first rate, um, is Zhou Xiaoxuan, because he's already three, four years over his retirement, and they'll have to replace him the end of this year and next year. And the, the institution that is most uh, respected within China and worldwide is the People's Bank of China. So there are a lot of things that uh, that Xi Jinping has to do. One of the other rumors that's going around, and we'll certainly know in the, uh, in the next uh, few days, is whether uh, Xi Jinping will keep his premier, uh, who is Li Kaohsiung. And normally the division there is the uh, head of state, uh, looks after the political side, has a military under him, but the economic side is driven uh, by the premier, like the famous uh, Zhu Ranji, who was so strong 20 years ago and got uh, China into WTO and changed the whole economy of the world, basically, not only of China. And there are rumors that uh, that Wan Shishan, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who's so close to President Xi Jinping, might be in that position. We'll know within four or five days. Also, uh, as part of uh, of this uh, very positive aspect that Xi Jinping is putting forward, the China dream, uh, uh, etc. 
they will be announcing uh, the third quarter results of their GDP on Thursday, and they'll probably show, if not 7%, very close to 7%. Yeah. So that'll, you know, that'll get them off on a, on a, in a very positive way. But they right. have to start making these reforms starting next year, yeah. without a doubt. Uh, Bill Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us, as always. Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, also banker for decades, including a long time at Citigroup. Let's talk about Facebook. There was a story on the Bloomberg Today that was fascinating, uh, looking at how Facebook and Google helped anti-refugee campaigns in swing states ahead of the election in the U.S. last year. Verdon Silver, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg News, authored this piece. Also here in the studio is Shira Ovide. Uh, Vernon, can you just outline what you found? Yeah, basically, what happened is this group, which is against uh, immigration, refugees, with uh, all these ads that they wanted to put on the internet in advance of the elections, targeted key swing states like Nevada and North Carolina. And they didn't just buy the ads. You know, when you think about Russian interference, you think about people who are unknown buying these ads. They went directly to the ad salespeople at these companies and worked with them. In some cases, the companies, the big two, were helping tailor the message for them. And even in the case of Facebook, in one case, using these videos, which were, you know, making fun of what happens if the Islamic State comes to Paris type of thing, and using them to test their product. What's been the reaction from the companies? You know, they sell ads. That's that's their job. So they, it's just money to them. Well, no. Part of it is they can't be censors either, and it's really it's a fine it's a fine line between. Why you can refuse to accept someone's you advertisement? Could, but where do you draw the line? Well, uh, I want to bring Shira in here. Uh, Shira, I'm wondering what the implications are for Facebook as these new facts emerge that not only uh, did they allow some of these political operatives to advertise, but they helped them hone their message and uh, experimented with the best, most attractive social placing. I mean, what's the implication from a regulatory standpoint uh, as well as a business one? Well, look, I think we've clearly seen this year, particularly since the the U.S. election, the presidential election in the fall, that Facebook and Google especially are now under a microscope about everything to do with their business and particularly the power of those two companies to literally influence two billion or more people around the world, right? And they pitch themselves as we can change people's minds or influence people to buy soda and soft drinks, um, soda and, and, you know, Ford trucks. And it turns out they may also be vehicles to, you know, turn people against immigrant groups or to help sway elections in places like Germany. Well, Vernon, I just want to come back to this idea of, okay, where do you draw the line? I mean, you can't advertise cigarettes, right? You can't advertise cigarettes on television. You got billboards telling people not to smoke. There are a variety of advertisements and a variety of topics that are not permitted in Absolutely. certain yeah. venues. And this goes what is so difficult if these companies are so smart and they have all this great PhD talent and all these technical wizards, what's so difficult about saying we're going to draw the line at things that are obviously not true and things that are really just designed to incite people rather than to inform them. Those restrictions you just mentioned go back to the point that was just made about regulation. Right. These, these are things that came from the outside, and that's the risk to them. 
Well, okay, so political advertising, uh, this is the issue, right? Because at what point do you say, well, this is inciting people versus this is trying to make a point from a political party? Uh, Shira, what would happen to, say, Facebook's ad sales if there was a regulation saying that they could not help craft or place prominently political ads? I, we, I don't think we really know the answer to that because Facebook does not disclose uh, the size of their revenue from political advertisements or kind of political related advertisements. Um, I think the reality is the scale of Facebook. There is no single advertiser or even no single category that is a you know seriously material um, piece of their business. I think Facebook said around the election that political advertising was not a top 10 ad category for them. Um, I am also not sure that we're going to see that kind of regulation in the U.S. around political advertising on Facebook or other internet properties. Everything is a little bit sort of amorphous outrage against Facebook at the moment, but I don't know that I've seen a credible kind of legislative proposal. Vernon, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing there is, you know, that it's not in the financials, but talking to the people on the other end who are placing the ads. In the case of the German far-right party, we weren't talking millions. We were talking hundreds of thousands. This was very small money for a, a, a big company like Facebook. And yet this was a campaign that helped a far-right party come to power for the first time since the Second World War in Germany. Although you could argue that it is exactly because these small fry operations can have such a huge reach on Facebook uh, that Facebook has attracted the same kind of advertising, uh, the bulk of the advertising that it has. So yes, it's small potatoes in and of itself, but the platform and the opportunity there is really what has uh, attracted so many people. Wonderful story. Thank you very much. Uh, Vernon Silver, our projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at VT Silver. And our thanks also to Shira Ovide. You can follow Shira, our technology gadfly columnist at Shira Ovide. This is Bloomberg. Uh, all right. We want to get smarter when it comes to what's going on in Wall Street. So we have Hugh Son. He is our finance reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow Hugh on Twitter at Hugh underscore Son, S-O-N. All right, Hugh, uh, you are uh, sort of debuting a three-part series that uh, Bloomberg has put together about automation on Wall Street. And I got to say, I like the title of this one, The Upbeat Bankers Who Privately Worry About Gutting Their Staff. Yeah. Do they also worry about gutting themselves? I mean, you know, you let them in and computers, they have a way of uh, expanding, don't they? I, I think um, I think top management believes that they will be the last to go. Somebody's going to have to turn off the lights at the end of the day. The captain, so. huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you still need decision makers at the very top, I think. All right. So tell us about this this uh, uh, series and yeah. what you got at in in the first of the, of the three-part stories. Well, we and, and everybody else really have been writing about this in piecemeal for quite a while now. And I thought... Um, we needed to do something a bit uh, more definitive. And, and so the real thrust of this piece is a, a data visualization project that shows across asset class, across job, across Wall Street, hedge funds, banks, everywhere, just the, the efforts that are being done in machine learning and AI and different things like a robotic process automation, which is you know a simpler form of AI. And the real takeaway for us was that there is no part 
of the empire that of finance that is completely untouched by this and it's just the beginning well, Hugh, one thing that struck me is the adoption of computers and artificial intelligence has been largely billed as a way to remove the mundane tasks from humans, uh, giving them more leeway to really be creative. This story really paints a different picture. Can you talk about that? Well, so the, the, I think the story we're talking about is um, it comes from conversations we've had with with executives who say, you know, on background, not not for you can't name me. This is not something that I want taped, but I think this is really gonna this is really gonna kill a lot of jobs, and this is on my mind. And so, when you think about organizations with hundreds of thousands of people, not everybody is gonna be not everybody is doing something on a daily basis that is creative that requires, um, you know, uh, real abstract thought and creativity. And so. What happens when their jobs get automated away, right? I and mean, this is this is going to have a real human impact. I think of, for example, the introduction of uh, ATMs, right, automated teller machines, and what that did to the banking industry. I recognize that at the time, the uh, the headlines were that there would become no, would be no tellers right. in any bank. Well, that didn't really come to pass, although it has changed. Uh, I'm wondering, is there the possibility that it will not happen in this straight line path that many in the industry see. It, it most certainly won't happen in a straight line path. It most certainly won't happen tomorrow or even in three years. Um, but it is happening right now. And and ATMs, that's a good example. That's something that's added. If you have ATMs, it's another channel that you get money. Uh, you know, just because you have, um, you know, a, a, an app, banking app on your phone doesn't mean that you still don't need the branch. Um, what we're talking about is a little different. We're talking about... Um, uh, computer programs that essentially automate the tasks of what people do today. And I'll give an example. One, one example is loan underwriting. A person who does loan underwriting looks at uh, the potential uh, borrower and sees if they're a good credit risk. It takes hours and hours and even days. Can a computer do that faster, cheaper, and better? Uh, I think so. So are there any estimates by anyone of how much Wall Street uh, headcount could shrink over the next decade or two due to the adoption of artificial intelligence and other computers. You know, um, it's a, it, opining about AI is a growth industry. I mean, there's a ton of consultants, uh, you know, who put out. So that's where, where people can go for their uh, new employment, right? That's 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 somewhere. Yeah, that's somewhere you can um, make a name in. And I mean, in general, you hear you hear people say 30 percent in five years and 30 percent does not seem high. When you when you think about the numbers of people who are in the mid and back office doing things which are essentially moving numbers from one screen to another and making sure that the trains run on time. 30% staff cuts across Wall Street over the next five years is what some think is a conservative estimate. Is is a number that has come up ballpark uh, time and again from different from people from Vic Companion to you know to uh, you know John Cryan at, at Deutsche to to uh, consultants. Yes. They get that from a computer? Just kidding. Yeah. Hewson, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And we look forward to reading the next iterations of this series, an important, uh, an important series to really read and consider about Wall Street going forward. Hewson is a finance reporter for Bloomberg, and you can find uh, both the stories and, it's, and their graphics, which are really uh, quite compelling. They're interactive and show which areas of finance are most at risk of getting uh, shrunk on the human side due to computers.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.